As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present and to Aboriginal elders emerging. Happy, happy 30th birthday to patron Tari Edwards. And her sister Summer is also a patron and she asked us to give you a birthday shout out, Tari. Isn't that nice? It reminds me of my ninth birthday when my mum got the guy on the radio to say happy birthday to me. And he also told me to look under mum's bed and when I did... There was a skateboard there, which I really wanted. So I'll never forget that. That was super cool. So Tari, what I want you to do is go right now and look under your bed. This is exciting. Go and look under your bed. It's really cool because what's under there? 
Yes, that's right. It's a psychopath. Yes! <laughs> Happy birthday. Yes, Summer and I thought it'd be fun. Emily wasn't sure, to be honest. But anyway, happy birthday. I tell you what, though, we have just opened a shop on our website that's got uh, a key ring, a tea towel, a tote bag and a coffee mug with our logo on it. So I will send you one of all of those things for your birthday from Emily. She would prefer that. So there you go. Not as good as a skateboard, but better than a psychopath. Patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. That's how you can join up to this funny little club of ours. It's sort of like brownies, I suppose. My brownies was weird. We had a weird Arcala. Um, Also, if you're in Sydney, you can come and see us live on stage. It won't be this weird. It's it's straighter than the... Oh, it's not that straight, to be honest. On stage with Narelle Fraser. Just go to our Facebook page and there's a link there and you can buy tickets. It's on in October. Okay. Out of time, no more shout-outs, on with the show. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. She looked at the jury with, you know, her great big eyes and a little pathetic face and she said, he punched me right here and she put her finger on her temple. And you can almost hear the jury go, oh. But in fact, they interviewed the doctor subsequently and he said she didn't have a mark on her face, number one. But well before that, when I interviewed Murdoch the first time, he put his elbow on this table where we were and he made a fist and his fist was the size of a rock melon. He's a big man. And he said, that bitch reckoned I punched her in the face. He said, if I'd punched her in the effing face, I would have broken her effing jaw. In November 2000, young British couple Pete and Joanne left home for the adventure of a lifetime planning to travel the well-worn track all the way south through Asia, backpacking through Nepal, Singapore, Thailand and Cambodia. They'd finish up by buying a cheap combi van from fellow travellers in Sydney, picking up a working holiday visa and driving around Australia for a couple of months before flying home. The Australian leg had for generations before been seen as the safe part of the journey. Australia, of course, being an outpost of England. But by the time these two left home, several recent incidents had changed our reputation among potential tourists and their families. Namely, Ivan Malat's killing spree in New South Wales, the deliberately lit Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel fire in Queensland, and the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Seven months after they left home, on one of the loneliest stretches of highway in this country famous for them, Peter Falconio and Joanne Lees became part of that terrible history. 
their names forever synonymous with the dark side of laconic, laid-back Australia. But there's a third character in this story, of course, Bradley John Murdoch, the man convicted of murdering Peter on that highway, even though no remains have ever been found, nor for that matter, any evidence that Peter Falconio was murdered at all. Author Robin Bowles turned her keen mind to this case from the very beginning for her book, Dead Centre. And as usual, she went to extraordinary lengths to investigate the many questions surrounding it. For some people, just spending hours in the company of Bradley Murdoch would seem extreme, but that's nothing for Robin. Well, it occurred to me because I... I know the track, as it's called, the Stuart Highway. It occurred to me that there wasn't really very much cover on either side of of the track. I'd never actually been there and measured it, but it didn't look like there was much space to hide. And I thought, how could a young pommy girl elude an experienced bushman in that sort of countryside? I just... Joanne Lees' story just didn't ring true with me. So... I persuaded my husband to put his pen down and uh, hop in a car with me. wasn't too hard because he's a POM as well and they love those wide open spaces, the POMs. Mm. That's why they come here, I they think. They do. So we decided we would follow Peter and Joanne's journey from Adelaide north on the same days and the same locations until we reached the spot where the alleged incident occurred. So this involved going via Adelaide to the Bolivar Caravan Park where we actually discovered that it was likely that Joanne Lees and Peter Falconio stayed at the caravan park at the same time as Bradley John Murdoch and his dog, which made me quite excited because I thought, well, there's an opportunity for his DNA maybe to have got on her T-shirt, which had nothing to do with the incident. Then we went up to Alice Springs and we signed on our, our film crew Chris Tangy and his cohorts and um, we also had a couple of his mates who were sort of riding shotgun for us to keep an eye on us uh, as we were doing this proposed reenactment. Got the cable tyres, the infrared camera, went and interviewed the police to find out exactly where it happened. They told me that there were actually still pink markings on the road where they indicated where all the cars and things were at the time. They were still there two years later. The night before our adventure, I went to a pub to interview someone and uh, I had a seafood salad, which is a big mistake in Alice Springs. It's a long way from the sea. (laughs) And so I got very sick and I had to actually be in hospital all night on a drip. The nurse said to me, oh, this is terrible. She said, it's going to give us a bad reputation in Alice Springs. Prince Charles got seafood poisoning as well. And I said, well, it was nice of him to let me know. <laughs> so I, had, I was feeling particularly shaky when we headed off. But we went to the Camel Cup where they run camels round and round the track. Yeah. Ugly looking beasts they are and bad tempered. It's fun. Yeah. Um, but it was hot. And we anyway, we left at 4.30 and we, then we drove to the first stop that Peter and Joanne said they made, which was the Tea Tree Roadhouse. We stopped to have a coffee. We didn't have a bong, which she said that she and Peter had. And that was only an hour or so before the incident happened. So, you know, I've often wondered whether that influenced what she remembered. So we got to the spot and then I got out, hands behind my back, tied up with cable ties. We had a gunman, uh, that was Chris. He was wanted to play that part. And then we had watchers on the road to count the cars that went past to see what sort of traffic we had on that particular night and that particular time. It was dark as pitch, no moon, no no stars even, and terribly quiet. And it's very hard to explain the silence. And 
if you just step on a twig, it makes this huge snap noise. And so I said to Chris, give me a few minutes to start because I'm older and fatter than Joanne. And I took off into the bush, running through across the pindan and the gravel and then across the spinifex grass, which is very sharp and pointy. And you'll often see workers in the Territory who are wearing shorts but they also wear gaiters so they don't get cut about by the spinifex grass. That's the reason. What are gaiters? Are they those, are they those like that's... cricket pads, you know, that, oh, that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to protect your lower legs uh-huh. when, um, when you're walking through the spinifex because it can give you nasty scratches. Mm. I was wearing shoes because I'm a bit scared of snakes, but Joanne had sandals on. So anyway, I hardly got any distance at all. I ran between two mulga trees and... I ran straight into a spider's web, wrapped itself around my mm. face, which was really scary. But I couldn't get it off because my hands were behind my back. So mm. I just sort of spat it out and kept going. So I crashed through the mulga, which is made a lot of noise because the tree branches fall off when they die. They just fall down, of course. And then I heard my gunman coming behind me, you know. Then I hit a fence. On the other side of the fence, there was this very large bull. I thought, I'm not going over there. So I did a little sort of angle back and found somewhere because he was getting closer and I just crouched down. Now, the thing about the fence and the and the distance I ran was that from the side of the road, we went back and measured it the next morning, from the side of the road there was 10 metres of pindan and gravel, then there was about 10 metres of spinifex and then around about 10 metres of mulga before the fence. So it was approximately 30 metres in from the road, which isn't very far. It's 30 big paces for a man. So whatever happened that night, the gunman, if he was looking for Joanne, he would have had the same obstacles in his way. And when he got to the fence, he would have doubled back as well. Now, if Chris had doubled back to his right instead of his left, it might have taken him longer to find me because he'd just go back to the road and then back down and back the road. Well, he actually turned left like I did, so he found me very quickly. Then we called in the camera crew and they filmed all that sort of thing and then we got back in the car and we went to the Barrow Creek Hotel, which we'd booked into for the night. We call it the Pilton Hilton because Les Pilton is the owner of the Barrow Creek Hotel. So Helen was his partner and um, she just looked at me and she said to Les, now that's how that girl should have looked that night. And I was covered in pendan and spiderwebs and scratches, so I was a real mess. So, so she meant Joanne? Yeah, well, she meant Joanne, of course. And, of course, when Joanne came in, she had no scratches on her. Uh, she had very little marks. I've seen her clothes. They took her clothes the next day. So she had very little pindan or dirt on them. And she didn't have any injuries. So that little experiment to me proved quite satisfactorily in my own mind that what she said happened that night could not have happened the way she said it. I've never doubted that something bad happened. Of course, Peter's vanished. She's traumatised. But whether it happened the way that she said, I have grave doubts. Wow. Well, that's a very controversial yeah. thing to say. Can you tell us, yeah. remind us, what is her story? Yeah. What, according to Joanne Lees, happened that night? Well, the story she told the police the next day, and, and she's hardly varied it except during the trial, which was a huge surprise to everyone who was there, but we'll perhaps come to that later. She said that she and Pete had left Tea Tree after smoking a bong. Uh, it was 6.21pm and they'd driven to the where the incident took place. The combi did about 80 k's an hour, so that's how it's placed there at around about 7.30-ish, that sort of time. She said after they pulled out from Barrow Creek, they passed a fire on the side of the road, and Peter wanted to stop and try and put it out, but she didn't want to because she thought it might be some sort of trap. And at the time I thought, why would anybody want to trap a couple of young backpackers? You know, they don't, They're not usually loaded with dough. But anyway, that was what she said. 
Then they drove on and they saw headlights behind them and then a man pulled level with them with the interior light of his car on, which again was very surprising to me because you don't drive out in the pitch dark with the interior light on. Mm. And sitting next to him in the drive in the passenger seat was a brownish black cattle dog and he gesticulated to Peter to pull over and said his combi was blowing sparks. Now, they, have, they had had trouble with the combi. The engine uh, had been an issue all the trip. And, in fact, someone, and we never found out who, but someone did a repair on it on the journey and fixed up part of the fan belt and, and, and so on and tied it up with the stocking and some 100-mile-an-hour tape, which was a very typical way that a bushman would repair something temporarily. And I often wonder whether it was actually Brad Murdoch at the, at the caravan park whether he, in fact, was the one who, who did that bit of running repair for them. But he says he's never met either of them. He's told me that. So, you know, it's only my speculation that says that. So then Peter pulled over. He got out of the car. He walked to the back, came back to get his cigarettes, told Joanne to sit in the driver's seat and rev the car. And so she was revving the vehicle and she said she heard a bang. She thought it was the backfiring. So she wasn't concerned at that time. She could see them both at the time in the rear vision mirror of the combi. Then suddenly she said the man appeared at the window pointing a silver revolver at her head and told her to turn the car off, move over. Well, she, was, she said she was so frightened that she couldn't do anything, she couldn't move, so he opened the door and pushed her across, turned off the vehicle. He took her glasses off and then he pushed her outside of the car onto her stomach and tried to tie her up with her feet and her hands behind her back. She said that she kicked and kicked and kicked so he wasn't able to tie up her feet, but he did tie up her hands. She also said that he punched her in the in the temple. Then she said that he got her up and put his hand behind her neck and sort of frog-marched her to his vehicle, which was a white four-wheel drive vehicle, and opened the passenger door. It's very important at that point. Mm. Opened the passenger door. And there was a dog on the seat, which just quietly moved across to let her get in. So she climbed in and she said he put a bag over her head, a canvas bag. So I'm picturing Murdoch now getting into the combi with a roll of duct tape that he put around her face, which fell down and around her neck, the cable ties, handcuffs, another roll of tape for her feet, a canvas bag... And as one of Murdoch's friends said to me much later when he was telling me this story, he said he must have been an effing octopus. So anyway, we have him with all these things in his hand and and then putting her in the car. So then she said he went away and while he was away, she was able to wriggle through a crawl-through space between the two seats, the bucket seats, across a sort of bed-like area because Murdoch actually used to sleep in the back of the ute from time to time and still with her hands behind her back wriggle over the back tray and drop down and run into the bush and hide Mm. and then the gunman came after her so that was her story at the time. And where was he while, while she was doing this? He's, we don't know. He, okay, so he's put her in the car while he's holding on to all of these things mm-hmm. and then he's disappeared, I guess, I, I don't know where. He's disappeared and while he's gone, she's managed to do that? Correct. With the bag still over her head? Uh, no, the bag came off sometime, I don't know when, oh, because okay. she was able to tell the police artist later on about what the interior of the back of the truck looked like. But there are a few other anomalies which I think are quite important and it's one of the reasons that I doubt what 
she's said. The first thing is I spoke to a guy called Luke Hura who trained Blue Healers for the show and he owns Blue Healers as well mm-hmm. and I asked him if they shed and he said they shed abominably. Yeah, oh. I've got a red healer and I tell you, mm. he sheds enough hair every day to make another whole dog. Well, there you go. <laughs> I swear to God, Jacko, so, fill up. Jacko <laughs> does, yeah. So you're not a big wearer of black? Well, I am, but you can <laughs> see him all over me all the time, yeah. yeah. Mm. So, okay, so when the police saw her the next day at the Barrow Creek Hotel, they bagged all her clothes, of course, that she'd been wearing. Not one single dog hair was found on any of her clothing. Now, Jack also allegedly slept on the on the bed where Murdoch used to sleep when he got sick of sitting in the passenger seat, and there was no dog hair on Joanne from wriggling with her hands behind her back across that across that bed either. So that's the first thing that made me a bit surprised. The second thing was I later found out and I got photos taken within seven days of the alleged incident of Murdoch's rig that he actually had one of those aluminium mesh canopies that you can lift the sides up Mm. and then he used to cover that with canvas. So... Sometimes he had blue on the outside, sometimes he had green just to disguise his vehicle a bit. You know, that was all to do with the drug running. But at the back, it was solid. And the reason that the canopy was solid was to stop the pindan dust coming up and into his sleeping area because it comes up, thrown up by the, the rear wheels of the vehicle. So I don't know how she could have climbed into the back and wriggled across and dropped down when there's a solid back on the on the vehicle. Another thing is that he had a, a commercial sized tow bar on the back of the vehicle, which meant she would have had to push herself way out to jump out with her hands behind her back and not falling over would oh. be quite a difficult feat and she's not that all that athletic. It so, certainly suggests all of this suggests an incredible presence of mind under pressure to think this quickly and this clearly in the middle of an abduction. And in the outback where it's pitch black and it's an incredible. You don't know. I mean, from the moment that she's sat in the ute and has a a bag bag placed over her head, and the minute he shuts the door and walks away, it's like she's on. Yes. In her escape attempt, and that's like something out of a a movie. Well, you know, look, we none of us know how how we would perform under those sort of stressful circumstances, Mm. and adrenaline does kick in. I'm quite conscious of that. I think. Really what I'm saying here is that something bad happened that night, mm. but not what she said. And, I, you know, there are a lot of other areas that I can canvas if you, if you want to hear them, but there are lots of small things. In fact, the police identified 16 anomalies in her story before they let her leave Alice Springs. They sat her down with a police psychologist and a senior police officer and put those questions to her. There's actually some footage on YouTube of this exact interview and you see suddenly that it's dawning on her that the police think that maybe she actually had something to do with Pete's disappearance or death and she becomes very defensive and refuses to be treated like a suspect and so the interview wasn't very a very big success. I also, with Murdoch's help, because he ended up with all the boxes of material that the police, the whole case, because his lawyer arranged for him to get those, he told me the name of the hypnotherapist that the police brought up to the territory to hypnotize her to see if they could get more information about what she might have forgotten as opposed to what she was trying to remember and that wasn't successful and the hypnotherapist said that she was not actually hypnotized she 
she failed in in hypnotizing her because she resisted so much not you know she didn't want to be hypnotized and you have to be actually go along with it you can't be hypnotized against no. your mm. will i guess the thing for me that suggests that she's telling the truth more than anything about her entire story is it's not like she then went home and disappeared. I would assume that if if I were lying about any of this and got away with it, I would go home and never come back and be very quiet about it for the rest of my life. But Joanne keeps coming back to Australia and keeps doing television and keeps, you know, doing media appearances and all that kind of stuff. So, okay, well, yes, it's it's interesting that you have that view about going home and trying to hide because, Mm. in fact, that's what she did. Oh, okay. She she went back to her hometown and she tried to drop out, disappear. First of all, she went back to Sydney with uh, from Alice Springs with Peter's brother, Paul, who flew out from England to support her. And she went back to Dimmock's where she had worked and tried to resume her former life for a short period, but it didn't work out. And her boss, Gary, told me that, his brother had a beautiful seaside mansion on the on the harbour and he was overseas. So they let Paul and Joanne live there for a, a few weeks and then Paul went back to England and Joanne was just besieged by the media. I mean, the media is good and bad in, in all of these things. In this case, they really hounded her. I remember talking to one guy from Fleet Street who said to me after she'd been caught out in, in a lie, which I'll cover later, but he said, right, she's lied to Fleet Street. Now we're going to get her. And, you know, so they they hounded her in Sydney. She couldn't go in or out of Dimmock's without, you know, people on the steps camped out trying to get photos and interview her. So she went back to England and did try to disappear. Oh, right. Then she was offered a lot of money. I understand it was about £50,000 by Martin Bashir from Granada Television to do a one-on-one with him. And she told her boss, Gary, that she accepted because he was the one who interviewed Princess Diana Mm. and she thought he'd be kind to her. So it was really an effort by her to make all the other media go away and just say, look, I'm doing one interview and this is it. She did do that interview and it had mixed reception. So... Having done that, she was then offered a book deal. I heard, I'm a writer, so you hear this gossip, but I don't know if it's true, but I heard that she had a $500,000 advance for it. Mm. So she wrote a book, which was basically a bit of a fairy story, I think, about standing on balconies and looking at the sunset and how horrible the DPP was to her and, and so on. And on a number of occasions during the um committal and the trial process, she told Rex Wilde, who was the DPP, and I know this because he told me himself, that occasionally she'd just jack up and she'd say, look, that's it. I'm not coming back to Australia. You've got no case without me, so you can get stuffed. I'm over it. So she did try, I suppose, to, you know, go away and lead a normal life, but her life has been blighted by this. I Mm. I accept that. And, you know, she's never married. I don't even know if she's been in a a close relationship since that time. And she's tried different jobs and with varying success, I, I believe. She's remained friends with one of the police officers who was her chaperone in, in Alice Springs in the early days. And, uh, I'm still quite in touch with with Libby as well. And I was interested to see Joanne come out not long ago for two things. She found out she had a half-sister in Australia Mm. who looks uncannily like her, so you couldn't really argue that they were sisters, because her father was Australian. 
And they're quite friendly, aren't they? The, they are. She I and think. The, the I believe sister. they are. Yeah. I don't. I don't know for sure. I don't know. I don't have not privy to that information. But well, I read an article where they were in a women's magazine where they were photographed together, and mm. they did the interview together. Oh yes, they and, got. You yeah. know, they certainly got together. Whether they've remained friends since oh, yeah. then, I'm not sure. But um, the other reason she said she came out was to put a memorial for Pete on the on the highway, which I think really. Why would you do that? Why would you come out of hiding to go and do something like that? I, I don't know. Anyway, it didn't I don't think it went ahead because the Alice Springs Council said they knew nothing about it. So, Well, I suppose we talk to a lot of people who have a missing loved one and mm-hmm. if we take it right back to that level mm-hmm. and say that she is a woman who has a missing partner and they talk about that unresolved grief and wanting to lay that person to rest in some way, have yes. some kind of marker... I yes. mean, that, that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, they want some sort of finality that they can say, right, well, that's now I can walk away from that part of my life and, and move forward. Mm. And I think Joanne hasn't really been able to do that. And it's not only because it's not her fault necessarily, it's because she's really hasn't been given that opportunity by anybody, in, including me, including media, including anyone that was involved in the original story, because nobody is satisfied with the story that she told. And we, we're all still talking about we it. Are. I mean, and, and there's that iconic image of her. You, you couldn't have really made it up in a movie, could you, where she's at the press conference and she's got the cheeky monkey singlet on and she's like a deer in the headlights mm-hmm. and it's like this young woman from England. The touch of the Lindy Chamberlain's yeah. in that she didn't cry, she wouldn't cry, she's very, very stoic. Mm. That always makes people uneasy. Mm. Like, mm. When I say people, the public, we, yeah. we're uneasy. We're thinking, what's with this girl? She's... We expect people to act in a certain way. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Yes. Yeah, I guess when yeah, something... Yeah, we do. That's true. And I actually spoke to Lindy um, during my research for, for this book because there was a phrase that was coined by Paul Tui, who was one of the journos in Alice Springs, and it was the lindification of Joanne Lees. Ah. And she then started to take on this Lindy Chamberlain aura Mm. And, of course, that was horrific for the police because the last thing they wanted in the world was another Chamberlain on their hands Mm -hmm. and Dolby and other police, Cole Hardman and a few others, very senior police, said to me, you know, we just don't want another Chamberlain. We couldn't handle it. Mm. So, you know, they tried very hard. And, in fact, Brian Bates, who was the police commissioner at the time, flew down from Darwin to Alice Springs to sit with Joanne and try to persuade her to do a press conference and go on the radio or TV just so that everybody could move forward because the media was starting to get quite cross with her. And, of course, most of them didn't even know what she looked like. Mm. So, of course, she could have been walking around Alice Springs and and they would have missed the shot. And I know that people bought those little cheap cameras, you know, at the chemist, and there was a going rate for about 20 grand for a photo of Joanne Lees because nobody knew what she looked like at that time, you see. These were the days before Instagram where they could just go and pinch people's photos from Instagram and Facebook. Exactly. She was eventually persuaded to do one appearance and then I was... I was talking to Fleur Bitcon from um, Channel 9 and she said, Robin, please don't call it a press conference because the media had to put together a list of questions that they wanted to ask her. In the end, she answered three. But she also said that she just wanted one reporter in the room and she would do, you know, face the camera for one reporter and a, and a cameraman. Well, of course, they didn't want to buy that. So mm. then there was arguments about that. And Denise Hurley, who was the police PR person at the time, who I'm still in touch with as well, very nice woman, you know, she tried really hard to persuade Joanne to just do one conference. Mm. Anyway, in the end, she got up early, 7 o'clock, went and got her hair done and then put on a new T-shirt, the pink cheeky monkey T-shirt that everybody remembers so well. She walked in with Dolby and Paul Falconio and Paul read out a written statement from her really and she basically said in there that she didn't like the media because they didn't believe her story and they made up stories against her, which of course got everyone really well on side Mm -hmm. and then she left. Mm -hmm. So that was the press conference and then she went to ground again She looked really arrogant. Yeah, Um, she did. Yeah, I'm just looking at a photo now of the cheeky monkey moment. Did Denise not say, I I work in comms, I think, did Denise not think we should get another T-shirt for her? And she, she did? wouldn't oh, change. Right. Sorry, sorry Denise, oh, no. cut that out. I'm not no, meaning no. to be rude. And but she I'm literally, like... do you remember, she literally puts her nose in the air and looks down her nose, I remember, at, at, you know, at, at the media and she's wearing this pink singlet that says Cheeky Monkey and it's like she's daring people mm. to... Impeccably made up, by the way. Yeah, and beautiful hair and she's daring people to not believe her story or to not 
I don't know, sympathise with her, what she's been through. It's a really strange performance. It is. And I think, to be honest, I really do think it was sort of a sort of PTSD yes. kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think that she was she had been traumatised by something terrible. Yeah. And, and did she feel that we weren't treating her with the respect that we that had We weren't loving her, you yeah. know. And when I spoke to Lindy, she said, look, I got in touch with Joanne and I offered to go over and help her, give her a bit of counselling and so on, but she refused. And she said, the thing is, the police told me to talk to the media. And so I did. And look what happened to me, you know. Mm. And so... Maybe she was told by the police not to talk to the media or someone said don't talk to the media because look what happened to Lindy Chamberlain. So she's not talking to the media. But either way, the media was a big player in this whole story. Oh, yeah. And uh, there, were, there were about 100 journos in Alice Springs at the time from all over the world. And uh, they were very much in evidence at the trial as well. Well, I've said this before. There's, there's a reason the McCanns and those families don't talk to the media. Mm. I'm terrified of the media. I get it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I, I wouldn't. Well, when I used to run a PR company, I used to say to my clients, if you don't want to see it in print, don't say it. Yeah. And that's very that, good you know, advice. Yeah. Because so, no matter what you say and what you mean... It can be used any way you like. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And it's more fun, honestly, if it's used to make you look terrible. And on that hideous truth bomb, we'll take a break. But coming up, Robin tells us about spending time with Bradley John Murdoch. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Robin Bowles, whose book Dead Centre is the only book you need to read about the Falconio case, tells us about the moment Joanne Lees sensationally changed a crucial detail of her story during Bradley Murdoch's trial. But first... Emily tells us about the unlikely request she received from police in the early days of the investigation into what was, at the time, the disappearance of Peter Falconio. It was just that footage, that very famous footage at a petrol station. That's how I actually came to become in contact with a police officer because I was working at the Optometrist Association at the time and they were that. They were just trying everything. They were getting, trying to get in touch with optometrists mm. to try and identify those very oh, distinct glasses. kind of glasses. Oh, yes, Which okay. is so I ended up becoming oh, friends. Wow. Yeah, you do. Those, See, it's touched everybody. It is, yeah. yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I do know they, they put an awful lot of effort into trying to identify that truck stop person. I put a bit of effort in myself, but I spoke to the manageress of the shell stop and she said that the fact that the police were saying that they'd been enhancing photos, the photos and so on, was couldn't have been correct because they had only recently put in a new system. Mm-hmm. So they had a new security system, but the same old cameras. And she said, you can't enhance a bad photograph. So um, was it Murdoch truck stop? I spent 50 hours or more uh, interviewing Murdoch over the two or three years that this took me and all all that time in various prisons. And I, I, I really feel that he always told me the truth about anything I asked him, but I was never confident that he told me the truth about the truck stop. And there's a number of reasons for that. And he knows that I, I have that belief that it was him there. But there's a a term in legal parlance called consciousness of guilt, which means that if you're in a place or a situation which could place you near a crime, 
that you didn't commit mm. even, but it places you in a difficult position because you're near. Sometimes people lie about it. They say, no, 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 I, I never went to the Burke Street Mall that day because they don't want to be perhaps called as a witness to the bombings or, mm. you know, something like that. So they, it's, it's a sort of consciousness of guilt issue. And I just think that because he was only three hours' drive from the incident on the same night, it suited him not to be the man at the truck stop. Because we know that for years he had been driving that route that route mm. i mean his lifestyle at that time was unbelievable wasn't it the the trafficking of marijuana up and down that route driving incredible distances he was using amphetamines was that right yes. to to be able to keep driving he never shot up he said he only ever um put it in his tea in his tea. In his tea. Oh, and he drank it? a lot of tea. Sure. If nothing, I'm not mad at him for drinking tea. That's I fine. He used to do, sometimes he could drive for, you know, 40 hours straight. Mm. Just keep driving. A sexual assault of at least one child. Yeah, but he was not convicted of that. Okay. That was, a, that was an accusation that uh, was shown to be completely false. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he doesn't have, what convictions no. does he have? A uh, long time before this incident, he had a conviction for discharging a stolen firearm in public mm-hmm. because he owned a rifle that was stolen and he purchased it. He didn't steal it, but he purchased it as a stolen rifle. Mm-hmm. And he he was drunk and he got angry at a group of Aboriginal footballers who had parked their vehicles on a bridge which was on his way home to where he's working on a property up in far north Western Australia. So he drove round the bridge through the river, I think, and then stood on the other bank and fired at the vehicles. He didn't know that there was a woman asleep in one of them and a bullet missed her by inches, otherwise he would have been in prison for a long time. But he did go to prison for, I think it was about nine months he got. But then after that he went up to uh, Broome and he had no other convictions. He didn't want to go back to prison. But when I met him, he'd been running drugs from a little town in South Australia called Sudan, which is sort of north east of Adelaide, across either across the Udnadatta track or across the Tanami track up to Fitzroy Crossing and then across to Broome. And he was doing that with a mate of his called James Heppy who actually owned the business and Murdoch drove for him. They were doing about $20,000 a run. Mm. So I can tell you, if I ever give up being a writer, I could successfully run drugs from Sedan to Broome. I know all the tricks in the book. You're going to have to drink a lot of tea, though. Yeah, that's right. And get a vehicle that I can change the looks of yes. because he, he would paint the bull bar black sometimes or he'd have it chrome. He'd change the colour of his uh, canopy. And he said, you know, and, and he had number plates that uh, he had interstate number plates and he also used to use black tape to change an F into an E, for example, and stuff like that. So anyone seeing him going by wouldn't think it was the same vehicle each time because he used the same route a lot. And, and he was sort of very much about keeping to himself, wasn't he? He was living mm-hmm. a lifestyle where he was uh, very antisocial yep. um, and very much about keeping himself to himself and he was in his car yep. and driving. And that was his life. He but, had been married. He's got, a, yes. he's got a son. But he, you see, one of the reasons that I just don't think that Murdoch was involved in the way that Joanne Lees says mm. is that I got to know him quite well in that time. He was a bit sort of distant when I first went to meet him, but by the time we'd spent 50 or 60 hours together in prison, it was, you know, we were quite... I could almost say we were good mates, but he's not a good man. He's, you know, he's done bad things and you'd certainly freak out if your daughter brought him home for lunch. But he basically came across to me as being a very organised, very careful person. 
and not someone, because he's so big, not someone who needed to use a gun. He could use his fists and or just his power of intimidation because he's such a big person. He, he does look like quite a he's scary man. He can look I'll scary. He honest, can look very yeah. scary. And he's got four missing front teeth, which was omitted by Joanne Lees in her detailed description of the gunman, I might say. No distinguishing features, she said. And he had tats right down to his wrists and four missing front teeth apart from anything else. but Which um, give him a very distinctive mouth, actually. They do. I would say he's got a very distinctive face. He can snarl very nicely. He looks like an Easter Island statue. Yeah, he does, rather. Mm. You're right. So, look, I, I got to know Murdoch quite well. The first time I went and saw him, I was a bit an, uh, nervous myself, to be honest, mm. but I had to ask him the question because when you go and visit these people in prison, sometimes they won't let you come back. You've got to be on their visitor mm. list. So I thought, well, if he doesn't, want me to come back. I've got to get this one out. So, of course, yep. we hardly said hello. And I said to him, well, did you did you kill Peter Falconio? And he said, well, no, I didn't. And how do you know he's even dead? Which was a fair question at that time. It was only like uh, a bit over 12 months since the disappearance. Hmm. Another thing that he said to me, which sort of struck me, this interview was what set me going back to Melbourne and saying to my husband, put your pen down, we're going on this trip. Because I said to him, have you got a dog? And he said, yes, I have got a dog. And he said he's four years old, his name's Jack. He goes everywhere with me and he's a Dalmatian. So I'm a bit gobsmacked here because so far we've heard several different descriptions of the dog but not one of them was white with black spots. And I said, where is he? And he said, oh, some people are keeping him up near Sedan. I'll tell you where he is. You can go and take his photo if you like. He said the cops have already been. I did go and have a look at Jack and he was a Dalmatian. There might have been a bit of something else in him but definitely looked like a Dalmatian. Another thing that Murdoch said to me was that Joanne told the court in the trial that the gunman had punched her in the temple. And in fact, she looked at the jury with, you know, her great big eyes and a little pathetic face. And she said, and he he punched me right here. And she put her finger on her temple. And you can almost hear the jury go, oh. But in fact, they interviewed the doctor subsequently. And he said she didn't have a mark on her face number one. But well before that, when I interviewed Murdoch the first time, he put his elbow on this table where we were and he made a fist and his fist was the size of a rock melon. He's a big man. And he said, that bitch reckoned I punched her in the face. He said, if I'd punched her in the effing face, I would have broken her effing jaw. And I believed him. So there were no bruises or anything on her. And I actually ran after the doctor. After he'd given evidence, I ran after him down the driveway of the Supreme Court. I really wanted to check that point. You, know, you go all out, Robin. You go all out. You've got, to, you've got to get the, yeah, the you facts, do. you see. And, and people will tell you stories. And it's one of the reasons I never pay for interviews because people mm. sometimes say, oh, if you pay me, I'll, I'll talk to you. And I say, no, I don't. Because when you pay people, they usually want to please you because you paid them and they tell you what you want to hear, not you know necessarily what might be the actual facts. And I always check. I check everything. I find this so intriguing. I'll admit, even though I am have been heavily into true crime reading and a lot of stuff, this case, for some reason, I went so far with it in keeping up with it, but then I stopped. And I think partly because it terrifies me, honestly, I've never been able to watch Wolf Creek. I know there's sort of an amalgamation <laughs> of those characters with I'm like, but yeah, I just think I just stopped mentally and I was like, I just can't. It just really 
disturbed me so much and listening just to the lengths you've gone to research is intriguing to me. It's funny you you mention Ivan Milat in the same breath because in Ivan's case a lot of people believe that there were other people involved, that Mm. Ivan wasn't the only person, that there's been a miscarriage of justice in that case and there is a big groundswell within Australia of people who believe there's been a miscarriage of justice in this case against Bradley John Murdoch. As you say that he's not necessarily a great person but that he is innocent of this crime. And I know that you don't like to make judgments in your books about people's innocence or guilt or, or put forward theories yourself. But how about now? <laughs> how about it, Robert? How about in people's podcasts? I mean, after having spent so much time with Murdoch, um, mm. do you think, let's talk about the, the, the court case. Do you think that the truth came out, the whole truth? Do you think there's been a miscarriage of justice in this case? Do you think there's more to it? Well, a few things I'll say about the trial. Cause well, I went the to... first thing you said earlier was that Joanne changed her story sensationally in the trial. How she did, did she change it? And she also lied under oath and, okay. and eventually corrected that. The, the thing that I always say about trials is that the jury only gets to hear what is considered evidence mm-hmm. as opposed to what I find out, which is gossip, innuendo, speculation, and luckily now and then a few facts. So I have a much broader background of knowledge of of these things. And sometimes, dare I say it, I know more than the police and I know more than the lawyers because a lot of people that talk to me won't talk to the police. And so... I'm sitting there listening to what the jury hears and it's it's very sort of sanitised in lots of ways. There's certain rules around evidence, of course, that you can't, you can't break in a trial. I have to say that the jury probably, in this case, made the decision that most people would have made if they'd been on that jury. However, one of the things that all of us who'd been involved in the story from the beginning... I'm talking about right back to the Alice Springs incident way back. There were a huge number of media in uh, Darwin as well for the trial, of course. You could hear the intake of breath in the court when Joanne changed her story for the jury because in the interim period, the police had conducted a search around Australia for white four-wheel drive vehicles with crawl-throughs between the front seats. Any white four-wheel drive that was owned by a 40-ish old man was inspected by a police officer in the whole of Australia. There were a few over 4,000, I believe, and not one single vehicle had a crawl through. So obviously the police had told Joanne this was a bit of a sticking point in her story because if the defence brought that up, you know, well, how did she get into the back of the vehicle? So she was sitting there being taken through her paces by the DPP and so she said, and then the man put a bag over my head and he took me to his vehicle... And he lifted up the side flap and pushed me into the side of the vehicle, into the tray. Now, we were sitting in the court, the people who could fit in, because it was a very small court, and there was this noise. The whole court just went like that because we knew that that was a new part of the story. We'd never heard that before. But, of course, that's what the jury heard. Now, that's that's totally impossible because Murdoch had these flaps that you lifted up, they're aluminium, so that you could lift them up and prop them so you could sit under them if you wanted to stop and make a cup of tea or, you know, the sort of thing like an annex. Yeah. So, so A, there's no flap, and B, that wasn't her original story that she'd told over and over, over and over. Over and over. So is the defence not allowed to say, woo up, 
you've said many, many, many times he sat you in the front seat. Are mm-hmm. they not allowed to? Yeah, they do. They do? Oh, yeah, they say that. Yeah. And Grand Algy did. He said, oh, your story is now different. And that was at the trial. So that was a huge piece of evidence that... Of course the defence, I mean, the jury's going to think, well, of course the defence is going to try and discredit her. And a lot of people felt that actually Grant Algie didn't go in hard enough. I know Murdoch was disappointed, but he explained to me later that there's no point in trying to discredit a witness that's been schooled so carefully. Yeah. And she'd obviously had a lot of training on how to answer questions. She, she answered every question to the jury. Now, experienced evidence givers like forensic people and police and so on, they don't answer the lawyers. They look at the jury when they give their answer. So they look at their lawyer to get the question and then they give the answer to the jury. And people who are inexperienced, oh, well, there's a little trick you can do. People who are inexperienced are advised to when you get in the witness box, stand with your feet pointing towards the jury so that then you have to turn to listen to the question and then it's automatic to look back to to the jury when you're giving the answer. I take mental notes. Yes, yeah, yes. Just remember that in case you ever get charged with murder. So um, she had given this evidence in the in the trial, but in the committal hearing, Algie had gone in much harder on her, and he managed to unearth a, a little bit of a little gold nugget for the for the media who were salivating over anything, but particularly this particular issue. So before the committal, he had obtained for Murdoch the privilege of having a computer not connected to the internet but a computer in his cell and all the boxes of the police files. Normally the police files aren't made available to criminals but because the police, when they were giving their evidence, referred so often to the file, he was able to then say to the judge, well, look, you know, this is a bit unfair because we're hearing all this stuff that's in the file and we don't have a copy of the file. So I call for the file. And so the file came forward and it was about like four big cardboard boxes full of 120,000 pages of stuff. So Murdoch had nothing better to do but trawl through all this. And in his little researches, I mean, he helped me a lot because he gave me lots of information that, you know, wasn't available to the public because he mm. found all this mm. stuff like the hypnotherapist's address and so on. She nearly had a heart attack when I rang her up. In amongst all this, he found out that in the hotel where the police put her up, where she was being looked after by my, still my contact, Libby, um, Joanne was on the internet to someone called Steph and quite often on the internet and talking to this person. Uh, he was in Berlin at the time and she was saying, when this is all over, I should meet you in Berlin. And, and then another email said something like, if we ever have a little girl together, we should call her Stephanie and this sort of thing. And so, of course, Murdoch had found all these emails oh. and this was gold to him. So Algie just asked, he had a very soft voice in the court and he stood up and he said, and who is Steph? No warning or anything. Oh my just God. And she just looked like she'd been shot eyes went round, her face just went white. And she looked at Wilde, you know, the DPP, and of course he couldn't help her because he really should have brought it out in direct questioning to say, and you had a friend called Steph, but there was nothing in that, was there? You know, but he didn't. And so it was a bombshell and it all happened at about quarter to four. So the media are scribbling like mad and the judge kind of saved her. She said she didn't, she didn't know. And then Algie said, is that someone you've been emailing? No, she lied totally t- lied about it and so he hammered that point home and she continued to lie about it and she just looked like she didn't know where to go luckily for her the judge saved her by calling a five minute early adjournment the media were furious about it but he got her off the hook for then and then the next morning when she came back into court 
Algie went in again very politely and softly and asked her to tell, tell us all about Steph. And, of course, she'd been told by the DPP that she has to tell the story. Then, of course, people say, oh, well, you tell one lie. You know, could be others and, you know, it's... Yeah, so her credibility was a bit lacking in some areas, I think. But having said that, again, I should say that I don't think she was anywhere responsible for what happened to Peter. I, right now, even listening, I'm thinking, you know, well, she's a victim. Yeah. Like, she doesn't... That's right. And she's a young woman. Yeah, young woman. Sort of, it feels... Alone it very in easily, another country, you know. It very easily starts to tip into bullying. It feels it feel like we're bullying a victim here. And it does. You know what? So... Yep. And, and and Murdoch is such a terrifying looking man. Um, the optics are very easily believable, aren't they? Yep. So do you think there's any chance that Bradley John Murdoch could ever receive a retrial or anything of that nature? Well, He's- actually, no, I don't, because there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, scientific evidence now, which shows that some of the forensic material used at his trial was very suspect. I think, in summary, uh, Murdoch won't get out of jail because the Northern Territory government has introduced a new law, which I call the Murdoch Amendment, which says that if you've committed, a, if you've been found guilty of a murder and you don't tell the police where the body is, you're never to be released. No body, no parole. That's it. Mm-hmm. So even though he may survive the 28 years that he was banged up for. I don't think he'll survive prison because he keeps saying he doesn't know where the body is. Now, that could be true. And so what I what I think in summary is that something bad did happen to Joanne Lees. I think probably her boyfriend was killed either at the roadside or nearby. I think it was probably he was carrying drugs in the combi van for someone. It was a drug hand over gone wrong. And she was told to make herself scarce and give whoever did it a head start or the same thing had happened to her. And she was so terrified that she just ran into the bush and hid and she didn't make up the story then. Don't forget she had all night and a good part of the next day because it took the police three hours to come up from Alice Springs. So she had plenty of time to sort of mull it over. And there are other issues like in the morning of after the event, she was taken out to have a look at a four-wheel drive that was parked out on the apron of the Barrow Creek Hotel and, and also the driver... And also his dog. And those three things formed a very strong resemblance to the description that she later gave the police of the gunman, his dog and the vehicle. So how did she see all that with a bag over her head? You know, it's a sort of story that has now gone round the world and back again. And and I think Murdoch will die in jail. Robin Bowles, author of so many brilliant true crime books. We've been talking about Dead Centre today. But her latest, Death on the Derwent, is also available from the bookshop on our website, australiantruecrimepodcast.com. Thank you for downloading this episode. We'll be back next week. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.